Um, in what way does it hurt? Where does it hurt? Um, it's in my leg. Okay, um, is that for a medical reason? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'd like to make a suggestion. You know, the thing about the practice that for me is most exciting is that it's a way of trying to make difficulty workable. And what that means is that sometimes we have to play the edges a little bit just to see. So what I'd like to suggest is that you perhaps try it and not hurt yourself because we're not here to hurt ourselves. But it might be that what comes up is fear and then just let yourself be with that. Because I know for me, if I'm pushing an edge, fear is there, you know. And sometimes if I don't, if I ignore the fear, that makes it unworkable. So what I'd like to suggest is try it. If pain comes up, then I'm going to speak about pain in, at the beginning of the next session. Give that same quality of bare attention to the pain, allowing just the pain to happen, not the extra, not should I or shouldn't I, or this is going to get worse. That's what I do, you know. You know, I, I, I need a doctor, I need, where's my chiropractor, you know. Um, all of that, you know, and then if, if it gets really painful, then maybe stop and sit and just be with the pain with a real loving tenderness, not indulging it, but just being present to it. And then maybe try walking again and bringing that quality of bare attention that is a, really just a commitment to allow what is there to be without anything extra. We can begin to see, well, there is pain, but there's also a lot of fear there. And so we're beginning to understand what's going on a bit better. So I would experiment, and I'd also like to invite you to speak to either me or Narayan or Marcia uh, about how it's going, because that's what today is about. It's about how do we make difficulty workable, and how do we make our lives perhaps even more full than they really are, you know? And so it's working with limitation. How does it... Good luck. Rob? Is there, um, I find myself wondering what the, what the um, and I have a sense this is probably not what it's about, but at the same time I find myself wondering what the goal is or what the uh, focusing this on the practice is. Or, you know, I've heard people say, vital. We sort of don't want to leave here like zombies, you know, unable to relate in the world. Um, A big pun? Yeah. um, The question is, if we're cultivating this quality of bare attention and we're working with our breathing, what does that mean in terms of the other things that are going on in our life? I mean, how is it that this practice is going to apply in our life if we just with the breathing now? And the answer is that 
we begin the meditation retreat focusing primarily on the breathing and on the walking so that we can begin to cultivate this quality of mind that over the day we will open to include everything that's going on. But we need to stop because so many of us have minds that are very scattered and diffused. And so in a way, we're kind of exercising that now so that later in the day there'll be a strength of mind that we can then bring to the difficult emotions, say, you know, like fear or anger, etc., that can so easily blow us into a whole lot of thinking. Nothing that happens is outside of the practice. We give bare attention to thinking, we give bare attention to emotions, both boredom and fear and happiness and compassion. Everything that comes is welcomed, examined. And, and each, each time we ask, what is the truth of this? And what is my relationship with this? But we start with the breathing, just so, so that we can arrive here, collect ourselves. And breathing then becomes the anchor from which we explore everything else. And I think if you still have a question, Rob, an ongoing question through the day, bring it up again, because we will have more as the day unfolds. Just a couple of my words on the breath. One of the reasons that we pick the breath as a beginning, uh, as an anchor, as Gavin said, is because it's always there. We're always breathing. Other sensations in the body come sometimes, sometimes not. But we're always breathing, so it's an easy one. It's a very practical, basically a very practical um, beginning. I sometimes like to think of it as we're, we're training our minds to be more deeply concentrated. We pick the breath because it's very practical, easy to focus on. Um, and really, the beginning of practice is training the mind to really focus in a way that we don't usually do in our lives. We, we think we concentrate, but when we start to more deeply concentrate, we realize that we, that we really don't have a lot of focusing power. So it's basically a training. And from that, we can use that same depth of concentration, that same depth of focus to any aspect of our life, to look at any aspect of our life. Marcia, you have to remind me every time you talk to ask for the microphone. Otherwise, I'm going to be in trouble with these guys over here. Could you not hear? No, no, to get it on the tape. Oh. See, now we've lost your wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I really would like to emphasize again, as you get up, as you find your space, there's lawn out here, there's beautiful lawn out here. Um, for those people in chairs, if you go out under the building, there's a ramp here, and you can easily get under the trees and along the paths. Uh, we'll ring the bell in about half an hour. Thank you. For most people, one of the first difficulties that arises in the meditation practice is the issue of pain. 
To sit still for a length of time is hard on the body. Our back tightens, our knees hurt, our neck feels constricted and so forth. You perhaps may find that aches and pains pop up in the most unusual and unexpected places. Furthermore, what is true is that many of us already deal with chronic physical pain to some degree. So this too is there when we sit down in meditation. How do we deal with this pain? Can it be workable? If, for example, we're sitting, watching the breath as we've been doing today, and a pain arises in our knee, what is it that we do? Well, if you're anything like the rest of us, probably the first thing that you'll do is you'll ignore it. You think, well, maybe it'll go away if I just don't even look at it. So sort of hang on to the breath for dear life and the pain continues. Then you think, well, maybe I'll just give it a few sideways glances out of the corner of my eye, just a cursory glance, and you do that, and yet the pain still continues, perhaps even gets worse. Then you think, well, perhaps what I'll do is I'll give it some full, bare attention. Maybe then it'll go away. And you do this, and that doesn't seem workable either. Perhaps you can see that in each of these attitudes, there comes a degree of aversion also. In ignoring it, it's like, I just want nothing more to do with this, like pushing it away, you know. And in just glancing at it quickly, there's pretty much the same attitude there also. And certainly, if we're going to it in order that it goes away, that's not bare attention either. That's awareness with an agenda. It's like, I'll look at you if you go away. The meditation practice is not about removing anything that is happening. The meditation instruction is to move from the breath to the area of pain, if the pain is the predominant experience. Being present to the pain without judging it, like, I hate this pain, this, is, this can only get worse, you know, etc. Or commenting on the pain, like, I'm dying, you know, I'm, I can't handle this. Or just aversion to the pain, pushing it away, like I've mentioned, having some sort of agenda with it. It's so difficult to just be with the bare experience of what's happening. You may wish to use a simple, descriptive, soft mental label when pain arises, like throbbing, throbbing, or itching, itching, tingling, maybe stabbing, stabbing, and I've heard far worse than that or heat, or pressure, keeping the label very background so that you can come up really close to the pain and just be there with it. If thoughts arise, be aware that thinking has happened and return 
to the sensation of pain or to the breathing. As I said earlier, we use the breath as an anchor for cultivating that strength of mind that enables us to be just present with what is going on. And we go from there to the pain, bringing that same quality of mindfulness to what is happening. Not getting into a tangle with the pain, and if it feels like we are, maybe return to the breath, stabilize, degree of calm, collection of mind, to return again to the area of discomfort. If on the other hand we indulge the thoughts, we can so rapidly descend into a real quagmire. We think, first of all, perhaps, this can only get worse, this pain. I think I need a doctor. I think I need medication for this pain. I need a massage. I need a therapist. I need to discharge. I need my chiropractor. All of these are extra. All of these really add further charge to what was originally happening. Instead, in meditation, we give simple, bare attention to the pain, coming up close and perhaps seeing that it's not as solid as it appeared to be. That we see perhaps that there are changing elements to it. Maybe it's getting hot and cold and hot and cold and throbbing, but different kinds of throbbings, becoming really interested and inquiring into the pain. We resist the impulse to move automatically. So many of us live our lives where something's automatic, we immediately, something's uncomfortable, we automatically move, change. This is an opportunity to perhaps stay with it a little longer and just see, maybe it's not so necessary to run away from the pain this time. We perhaps just discover to our surprise that we can just be with the pain. We acknowledge any emotions that may have arisen in relationship to the pain. Certainly fear is a common one, and anxiety or anger. And we'll be looking at these difficult emotions after lunch. We find often that pain also is a riveting object of attention. It really collects the mind. The mind can become very focused on physical pain. So you may wish to really begin experiment with using pain in the meditation practice. Sometimes we back off from the pain, give it a lot of space, try to open our minds wider than the pain itself. And sometimes, if the mind is concentrated and calm, we can perhaps go right into the center of the pain and ask the question, what is the truth of this pain? What is the truth of this moment? Who is hurting? What is the truth of this experience? And what this means is that we're no longer a victim of the pain but a friend to it. It's a very transformative moment when that relationship begins to happen on all manner of levels and in so many different ways. I'd like to speak personally, if I may, for a moment. 
For me, working with pain is a central part of the meditation practice. With my back and digestion and neuropathy and bouts of muscle aches, sort of whole catastrophe, pain is really a full part of my life now. And for me, the meditation practice is unquestionably central in making this pain workable. I see that it is so easy for me to banish areas of pain from the warmth and love of my heart. Aversion to the pain is a rejection of what is true. And there is so much additional heartbreak in that rejection. I try to touch the pain with an awareness that is loving and accepting and compassionate. Sometimes I extend loving kindness to the fiery nerve ends or to the cramping belly. And we'll be doing a loving kindness meditation at the end of the retreat. And at each level of pain, I explore the possibility of holding it and finding a space that is larger that can hold and surround the pain. This means I'm no longer overwhelmed. <clears throat> I'm no longer victimized by the pain, but an ally and a co-participant in what's going on. <clears throat> I found also that if the pain becomes rigid, this intensifies the situation. And it does become rigid if I hold the pain in a gridlock of concepts. For example, I have peripheral neuropathy, or I have impaired digestion, or I have muscular dysfunction. All of these dire sounding words cast the pain in stone when in truth it's changing, and I see that in the practice. And if I don't hold gently to the truth of what happens in my body, what permission do I grant the miracle that I pray for and that I hope will one day be mine? Earlier this year I had shingles, and this was really uh, unquestionably the most extreme pain I've experienced. And the physical suffering was enhanced by sleeplessness and depression and despair. It was altogether a sort of mental and physical avalanche. It was a real challenge to stay present with it all. <clears throat> Too exhausted to do anything, I eventually let go of all meditation forms, meaning sitting as we're doing now and walking, which is a part of my usual day. Sleep was impossible. Sleeping tablets and painkillers only seem to make the experience more dull and more exhausting. And so I fought and I struggled and finally at last I just surrendered. I let go into the truth of the shingles and I stopped fighting. And the unwinding and the lack of conflict were a blessed and immediate relief. It was such a lesson to me on how much extra can be added to a difficult situation. Now, I want to say that it's easy to sound noble when talking about pain. I don't want to give the impression that I enduringly deal with pain in a breathtaking and saintly and valiant kind of way, because that's not the truth at all. 
ask either of my two friends on either side of me. Like all of us, I struggle, I fight, I stumble, I fall. But most often I let go just a little bit sooner than I did the time before. And for that I am so grateful. It's a tough teacher working with pain, but it's also my experience that it's very rewarding. For me, cultivating bare attention, as we've discussed it here this morning, is vital and it's fundamental. For me, can a cough be just a cough? Can a blemish on my skin be just a blemish on my skin? Can a cramp be just a cramp? Without it immediately escalating into a firestorm of dire and terminal predictions in my mind. I'm entitled to get the flu. I'm entitled to have an ear infection. I'm entitled to get bruised just like any other human being. Not that I don't respond to what's going on. I do, and I respond soon. But what seems to be changing is that I'm able to respond more and more appropriately to what happens without panic and with balance and with a degree of discriminating wisdom. Just allowing something to be, not adding all the extra, enables me to be so much more in control of what's happening and so much less a victim of these things that must come along. I'm so grateful for this particular fruit of the meditation practice. It's made such a difference in my life. So when you're with the breath and the pain arises somewhere in your body, allow the attention to move to the area of pain, giving bare attention to the sensations that are there. Now, one of the things that a lot of people do with pain is that they have this idea that they need to be some sort of kamikaze pilot and kind of blast their way through to the center. Well, that's just the way most of us live our lives, you know. I'd like to offer perhaps another image. Treating the pain almost as if it's an infant who's real scared and confused and just coming up close to the pain with an awareness that is tender and with awareness that is loving and just asking the question, what is this? What is this? Not pushing, not fighting, not conceptualizing, not intellectualizing, letting go of the thoughts that come and just be lovingly present to the truth of what's happening. Return to the breath every so often to collect the mind, to stabilize the mind, to find balance. And using the breath as an anchor, then return to the area of pain. Using, as I said, soft mental note of exactly what you find there, throbbing. Even pain is extra. Pain is a loaded word. So don't go pain, pain, because that, that just charges it. Go tingling, tingling, itching, spurting, spurting, tightening, pressure, pulling, pulling. Remembering what you're trying to do is just be present with the truth of the moment. It's very powerful work, this. 
if you do feel a strong need to move, please don't hesitate to move. We're not here to hurt ourselves. That's so important. If you need to move, perhaps give yourself just a few extra moments of presence with what's going on. Just to see, do I really have to move? And then if you feel you do, then mindfully move the leg, move the arm, and then settle down again. I'd like to share with you <clears throat> something that was written by St. Francis de Sal, which I found so important in dealing with pain. He says, be patient with everyone, but above all with yourself. I mean, do not be disheartened by your imperfections, but always rise up with fresh courage. I am glad you make a fresh beginning daily. There is no better means of attainment to the spiritual life than by continually beginning again and never thinking that we've done enough. How are we to be patient in dealing with our neighbor's faults if we are impatient in dealing with our own? He or she who is fretted by his or her failings will not correct them. All profitable correction comes from a calm and from a peaceful mind. Shall we meditate? Again, I'd like to ask you to take a position that is comfortable for you. I'm aware that some of you are needing to lie down, and that's absolutely okay. The thing to remember is that the quality of attention is what's most important in the meditation. So it's quite possible that lying down you could be more awake than some of us who are sitting up. You may wish to experiment with keeping your eyes a little open when you're lying down, perhaps focused on a spot above you, because if you're anything like me, I can go off in a moment. So, in beginning, if you could return to the experience of breathing, please. To that place where it is that you experience the sensations of breathing most clearly. Top of the nose, the rising and falling of the chest, or the abdomen area, expanding and contracting. Again, cultivating that quality and strength of mind that enables us to be present with the sensations of the movement of the breathing without judging what is happening, without changing what is happening, without commenting. Being present with the sensations of the movement of the breathing.
using a soft mental note, if you wish, to help the presence in each moment, in, out, rising, falling. Skillful tool to support the bare attention. If thoughts arise, that's okay. There's no problem with thoughts. You may wish to use a soft mental note, thinking, thinking, and then returning to the breath. The breath is the anchor, as Marcia said, the friend to which we can always return because breathing is always happening. The willingness, to be- the willingness to begin again and again and again is the heart of the meditation practice. Returning to the breathing with softness and tenderness and gentleness without judgment or frustration is the real beginning of the birthing of patience in, out. And should it happen that your attention is called to a sensation somewhere in your body other than the sensations of breathing, 
and this is predominant in your experience, allowing the attention to move to that area, to that place, giving the same quality of bare attention that we cultivate with the breathing to the sensations as you find them in your body. Being present to the truth of what's happening without pushing away or judging, conceptualizing, adding anything extra, giving pure, bare attention to the area of sensation in the body, returning to the breathing and from the breathing exploring the truth of what's happening. Returning to the truth of just this moment.
each time the mind wanders, gently returning to the experience of breathing. Once again, during the last minutes of this meditation, giving ever closer attention to whatever it is that your awareness is drawn, seeing perhaps the beginning and the middle and the end of each breath, the beginning, the middle, and the end of each sensation in the body without leaning into the experience, just be as closely present as possible to the truth of what's happening. No agenda. No need. Just being awake to the truth of what's happening moment to moment is the essence of the meditation practice. And being willing to begin again and again and again is the heart of what we're doing here.
allowing the thoughts to arise and pass on, allowing sounds to arise and pass away, allowing the breath to come and go, allowing the sensations to birth and to die. Last few minutes. These are the words of Nasagadatta, great Indian sage. He says, all you need is already inside of you. Only you must approach yourself with reverence. Deny yourself nothing. Give yourself infinity and eternity and discover that you do not need them. You are beyond. Make love of yourself perfect. Does anybody have any questions? Is anybody having any difficulty with the sitting? Perhaps any questions relating to the other meditations, the touching, hearing, or the walking meditation? So the question is, um, in dealing with pain, 
And, and what does one do if one has options? Like one could take some medication that would help or lie down as Eva did, which makes it easier, or is that unskillful? Is that the question? Well, you know, one of the things about the meditation practice that's really neat is that what comes up for us has to be what comes up for us in relationship to so much of our lives. And so the meditation practice can give us the possibility of grappling with ways that we relate to things in our life that don't always seem to be working. And I can certainly say in my own experience and in the experience of many people that I've worked with, that one of the attitudes in life that must then come up in the practice is this idea that um, we have to be stalwart and brave and we have to kind of plunge into it and that something only has value if it has a sort of uh, the nobility of hurting oneself and creating some sort of drama, you know. And I think that we see in the meditation practice that we can relate to our experience either with a balanced, a bare attention And sometimes we relate to it with a fight, we relate to it with a struggle, we relate to it because that is the way we are conditioned to relate to things. What we don't like, we hit, we want to get away, we push away. What we do like, we grab, we want more of, we want to hold on to. And in the meditation practices, we become more and more sensitive. We feel the pain of all that struggle. And it's the child of that pain that is the letting go. Our hearts eventually say, I can't stand this anymore, I'm going to stop fighting. And that's when the letting go begins to happen. Now, with pain, we can bring that same relationship of, you know, that something only has value if it's a real intense struggle. And I think we can learn new attitudes. And so I would say, Eva, that the thing to do, the objective is to make it workable. Sometimes it's valuable, like I said to you this morning, to examine what is going on. Because I don't know what medication you think of, but sometimes you take a medication, it can be dulling of the situation, which means that one is then a few steps away from seeing clearly what's going on. I find it very valuable to see what is the pure experience and what is the extra. And sometimes that means kind of sitting with it but not hurting oneself, because a lot of people have the idea that you know, a good meditator is somebody who grinds their way through the most excruciating pain. I don't, I don't believe in that. But I do think that there is great value in staying with something to that point where obviously it becomes unhealthy and then you take the medication or you move. But to just play with it. And maybe sometimes when the mind's feeling real strong and the attention's clear, to kind of go a little bit beyond what is really comfortable. And other times, if the mind's feeling fragmented or there's a lot of fear, you just say, you know, I'm I'm just going to take care of you here. You know, let's take that thing. Let's ease this up now. Because we'll come back to it again. It'll be there, you know. And it's all making it workable without a fight, you know. For a lot of people, this process of developing a relationship with what's going on is simultaneously the process of healing 
one of the fundamental attitudes that we have as a society have with life, and that is that everything is driven, rushed, pushed, struggled for, coveted. And it's perfectly reasonable that these issues come up just in watching the simple breath. And so we get to work with them again and again. We work with them in relationship to pain, as you're saying. And slowly, in my experience, there comes to be a point where you say, I will make choices that are loving, that are freeing, that are compassionate, both inwardly and outwardly. And that becomes the touchstone of living. You know? And all the ideas that we have about rushing and stuff, which are so inculcated in so many of us, just begin to dissolve because they no longer have any relevance. If you guys don't have any questions, that means I'm doing a really good job. <laughs> I know Narayan and Marcia will give me feedback later that will bring me down to good. <laughs> Sure. Um, I was just mentioned to Gavin that I might say something about my recent dentist appointments right now. <laughs> I'm allergic to anesthetic. I'm allergic to local anesthetic and most general anesthetics. And I just had a series of... Uh, fairly intense dental, a bunch of intense dental work done, and I, I uh, wasn't able to have any anesthetic. What I found was that um, it was basically a process of relaxing. You, you just spoke about the fighting and the pushing through. It was in order to be with and get through uh, this, these four dental appointments, it was basically for me, each time I went in, a process of relaxing into the experience. And I found that every time I, well, two things happened. Every time my mind would be distracted to, in some way, uh, start moving away from the actual experience that was going on, my body would start to tighten. My mind would not be with what was happening, and the experience of, of what was sensation, various kinds of sensations, became unbearable in a minute, in a second. And so I would just, what I would do was relax. I, would, I kept, what the, what the uh, dentist was, was saying was, you're sighing. I wasn't really sighing. I was just coming back to my breath, relaxing into what the experience which made it workable. And even at one, one appointment, um, I noticed that she was sighing a lot too. And it was a particularly difficult place that she was working in. And I was breathing every couple of minutes. I was sighing again, or not you know, taking a deep breath, coming back to the experience, relaxing, being present with what was happening. And she, her hand was shaking because she said to me at that moment, she doesn't like to cause people pain. And I took a deep breath, and she took a deep breath. <laughs> and she said, oh, you've got me doing it too. <laughs> I said, it helps, doesn't it? Uh, really, it is, just most recently for me, with pretty, with pretty intense sensation, uh, 
a process of just relaxing into it, opening into it rather than pushing against it, pushing away from it, running away from it with my mind, distracting thoughts or uh, paying attention to something else. It really is workable to open into it, makes it workable. I just thought I'd share that. Meditation stories from hell. Actually, just something else on my mind I need to ask. I'm in a situation where the clock on my wrist says one thing, that clock up there says another thing, and my clock down here says something else. <laughs> Does anybody here have the right time so that I know which one of these I can look at? How much? 12.13, okay, thank you. So asking this question, what is this pain and who is hurting? It's like the fundamental question. It's like who's, who dies, you know? What I'm thinking about is how to address that question, whether I want to address it now or later in the retreat, when it will actually be easier and more understandable later in the retreat. Arachne, I'm going to ask you to come back with that question. Is that okay? Because I just think it will be much more understandable and accessible later in the retreat. And maybe that's a question to ask, if there's pain. Just asking that question, you know, um, what is the truth of this experience? Is there just sensation happening? Or is there more than that, you know? But it, uh, I'll come back to that. So, it's 12.14. And what that means is that we're one minute away from lunchtime. <laughs> now, as I've said this morning and others too, that this quality of mindfulness and bare attention is really the primary focus of the day, just being simply, gently, tenderly present with what's going on. And as I also said, that this is not a cushion trip so that we can have a great time on our cushion, but really what it is, is about introducing this quality in life so that we're less scattered and more collected and present and awake moment to moment. So this period of an hour now, the bell will ring five minutes before we come together at 1.15, um, is an opportunity to just use the same quality of bare attention during the eating period where, again, if you're anything like me, it's a great time to space out and to solve the world's problems, you know? And just bring yourself back to the experience of eating. And I won't give you the long 
instruction. I'll give you the short version. If you just put the food down in front of you and maybe for a few moments just contemplate what it is that you're going to be eating, maybe with a sense of gratitude for the incredible web of interconnection that made it possible for that food to be there before you. All the people that were involved, you know, the sunlight, the rain, I mean, just this huge configuration of circumstances culminating in this food and just having a sense of that. For me, I also have a real sense of gratitude for the whole pile of vitamins and herbs and things that I take each, with each meal and just kind of acknowledging that I'm really fortunate to have that. You know, in Africa, where I come from and where I was earlier this year, people are dying of AIDS so fast because they have nothing to support them. They don't even have wisdom. So they're dealing with it and they're dealing with it in ignorance too. And they certainly don't have Chinese herbs and different vitamins. And so it's like, I can't take those without just a deep sense of gratitude. And then being aware of the feelings, you know, of hunger, of, of anticipation, acknowledging those, and then just reaching down and taking the food mindfully, maybe observing it, being present as you put it in your mouth, perhaps feeling the tastes of the food. Do it real slowly. There's no rush at lunchtime. You've got a whole hour. Feel the heat of the food, if it's hot or cold. And then chewing it mindfully. And then following it down. You can actually follow the food all the way down into the stomach. And for me, when I did that, when I was a monk for the first time, it was astonishing. It was this whole process that I just wasn't ever aware of. And just be really awake to the privilege of having food and awake to the eating of it. And in exactly the same way, with bare attention, without judging, you know, you see the food immediately, you think, oh great, you know, this is cheese and I love cheese and da 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 da. And that's all extra, you know. Just see the colors, see the texture, observe the tastes without adding it. And keep this thread of bare attention alive through this next hour, that is the gift of today, is just being present. Not because it's a trip we're on, but because as we exercise this muscle of presence and life in each moment, we are by extension introducing it as a possibility into our lives. And that's where the real transformation happens. So I'd like to invite you to take your lunch to wherever it is that feels best for you. you know, I would suggest eating your lunch on your own. There are trees and benches and things all over the place. And just use this next hour uh, in furtherance of what it is that we've, we've been doing here th this morning. And the bell will ring at 10 after 11, and we'll get together for fun and games at 1.15 again. Are there any questions about the eating meditation? Narayan is really good on the eating meditation. So if you have any questions, <laughs> we did a retreat last year, and I thought she did the eating meditation better than I'd ever heard it before. <laughs> she loves eating. <laughs> Are there any questions? Okay, well, thank you very much, and see you in an hour. awareness that is accepting of whatever it is
that is there. Arriving here again, together, now, fully. Another opportunity to let go of yesterday, this morning, thoughts of tomorrow. For the remaining time that we have together, recommitting yourself, perhaps, if you wish, to being as present as possible with the truth of what's happening for you. moment to moment. Remembering what the the Sagadatta says, I read this morning that all we need is already inside of us. Only we must approach ourselves with reverence and with love. Self-hatred and self-distrust are grievous errors. Our constant flight from pain and search for pleasure is a sign of love we bear for ourselves. All I plead with you is this. Make love of yourself perfect. Deny yourself nothing. Give yourself everything, infinity and eternity, and discover that you do not need them. You are beyond. process of meditation, we must come slowly to open to the totality of who we are. We're all like exquisite flower buds moving towards fullness and wholeness. We open to the beauty and the wonder of the truth of our being. We open to our capacity to love, to care, to nurture and to understand. We open to joy and to calm and to places of blessed silence within ourselves. We also open to what is being called our darker side. We open to our capacity to hate, to rage, to fear, to clutch, to hold on. We open to forces of guilt, perhaps, attachment, confusion, doubt, chaos within ourselves. If our meditation is wholehearted and true, it must call forth the entire range of what it means to be born human, the whole spectrum, the whole catastrophe.
For most of us, we carry self-images of who we are that are often lofty and usually limited. And we open to and feel the pain of the disparity between these images and the emerging truth of who we are. It's very hard and calls forth great compassion for ourselves. Our resources of patience and endurance are deeply challenged. Having anger arise in the mind is a part of being human. It's a part of the catastrophe. Yet we live in a world where anger is regarded as highly unacceptable. I have this very old and youthful memory of someone looking piercingly into my eyes and asking, are you angry? Looking for even the most microscopic trace of this dreadful defilement. For me, most of my life, anger has been wholly unacceptable both within me and within others. The taboos against anger are so strong, and for many people, it's difficult to even know when anger is there. People live in fear of anger because of the disapproval of others, and also because anger signals a need for change. Our society, furthermore, has a highly sexist bias against women dealing with anger or manifesting anger in any way. Angry women are labeled unladylike or unfeminine, strident, shrill. Angry women are called shrills, witches, shrews, nags, and more abusive words that I shan't mention. Similarly, those of us with disabilities are asked so often to assume the role of a grateful patient, always smiling, ever thankful, even when many of our needs are left unmet. Those of us who are disabled are seen as bitter and unadjusted if access and other disability issues are dealt with as human and civil rights, heaven forbid, rather than as charity for which we should be eternally grateful and shut up. It's interesting to note that in our language there are no derogatory terms for men who are angry. And to some extent it seems perfectly acceptable that angry and vicious wars are waged almost ceaselessly on our planet usually involving men. All of these are expressions and evidence of the unacceptability of anger in our society. No wonder anger is so widely unacceptable in ourselves. And the extent to which it is regarded as unacceptable or inappropriate within ourselves is the extent to which it remains unexplored. Yet we need to integrate any cut-off emotions that there are, including the anger, so that we might reclaim all that we and others have deemed unacceptable if our flower is to open into its full splendor and its full loveliness.
Galway Canal is the poet laureate of Vermont, where I have been living for a while. This is a poem he wrote. He said, The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on its brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it, it is lovely. Until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch, blessings of earth on the sow. And the sow began remembering all down her thick length from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of the tail, from the hard spininess spiked out from the spine down through the great broken heart to the blue milken dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the fourteen teats into the fourteen mouths sucking and blowing beneath them, the long perfect loveliness of the sow. So as a direct expression of the commitment to harmlessness in our lives, it seems we must take responsibility for our anger and for our rage. This means a face-to-face encounter with this emotion, an acknowledgement of its existence, learning to respond rather than react to the anger, coming into relationship with the anger, not being governed by it, not being a victim of it, but relating to it with balance and with care. And to do this, we must know the anger fully, like an old cranky friend. All its quirks, its edges, its idiosyncrasies, and its great power. Hopefully coming to recognize it long before the raging monster it can so quickly become. Seeing it in the moment of its arising is the challenge, and it's not easy. Let's look for a moment at how anger is most commonly dealt with in our world. There usually are two ways, and both of these ways are regarded as unskillful in the Buddhist tradition. Firstly, by the suppression of anger, and secondly, by the venting of anger. Both ways rigidify and maintain the underlying patterns that precipitated the anger in the first place. Neither one is regarded as a movement away from suffering, but rather a reconditioning of further suffering. Let's look more carefully at the suppression for a moment. Why is anger so often suppressed? Well, certainly, as I mentioned, society largely encourages this. Also, many people are fearful of their anger. They sense its presence and are petrified of it. They fear it will spill out of control, poisoning relationships and hurting themselves. So often we keep anger to ourselves to avoid conflict and to keep the peace. Our primary energy then becomes the protection of others and the preservation of our relationships. 
If this happens over time, we lose all clarity of our sense of self. Furthermore, this suppression is painfully self-defeating and self-denying. And we live life as Pollyannas, as nice men and nice women, sporting perhaps radiant smiles when we are seething inside with anger and resentment. Sometimes the anger can be so buried that it feels completely inaccessible. And we know that the effects of this inaccessibility can be shattering. It seems clear that this can cause disease in the body. Furthermore, this deep lung repression of anger can have profound psychological consequences too. Depression is certainly one common result of repressed anger. A while ago, I was in a very difficult interpersonal relationship, and for several weeks I was getting more and more angry. But what I didn't realize was just how angry I was getting. And one morning I woke up and I was in a paralyzing depression. I was totally listless, and I actually physically could not get out of my bed. Now, anybody that knows me knows that this is very uncharacteristic of me. It felt like my spirit was completely deflated and I couldn't stir myself. A friend called and I told her what was going on and she suggested I close all the windows and just roar like a lion. And so I got down on all fours, closed all the windows, got down on all fours, opened my mouth and for some reason she said it was important that I stick my tongue out at the same time. There was nobody looking through the windows. And I just roared. I just let this like guttural, fearsome roar come out of me. And within about 30 seconds, this huge column of energy just opened up inside of me. Well, I was so energized that like for the next three days, I didn't sleep either. I was so <laughs> energized. It was angry. It was rage. And it was such a complete contrast to the way I'd been feeling just moments before. For me, it was a very graphic reminder of the danger of keeping that sort of energy firmly in place within ourselves. So this is the suppression of anger. The other way that we use anger in society most frequently is by the venting of anger. What is clear is that the old anger in anger out hypothesis that says letting it all hang out so as not to have it in is just not true. There are no reservoirs of anger that need to be tapped and emptied within us. In the meditation practice we see that anger arises because of causes and that all things pass away including the anger. Nothing is permanent. And this includes anger. Anger arises because of conditions. Remove the conditions and the anger changes and falls away eventually. Venting our anger reactively, spitting it out, just makes the pattern of anger stronger in the depths of our consciousness. Furthermore, the process of involuntarily emoting anger involves much identification with the emotion. I am angry, I am an angry person, my anger, all fueling the fire and the identification and the suffering. 
Sometimes if the anger is very suppressed, there are useful therapeutic devices to lift the energy of anger to the surface. This process requires great care and skill and wisdom on the part of the therapist in order that the process does not create more attachment and the consequent suffering, but rather a healthy, objective, disidentified relationship with the anger. The venting of anger can momentarily relieve the pressure of the pain and the burden of the suppression. But if there is identification with the anger as me, mine, my own reservoir of anger, we're just creating another prison rather than freedom. In this age of psychology, anger has been so ennobled. How often do we witness righteous anger in the world? People choking with indignation about this or about that. People allowing their anger to splash out randomly all over the place. There may be short-lived satisfaction and relief in venting the anger, but in the long run, the pain just endures. Tetnat Han is a wonderful Vietnamese monk. This is what he says about pillow pounding. He says, some of us may prefer to go into our rooms, lock the door, and punch a pillow. We call this getting in touch with our anger. But I don't think this is getting in touch with our anger at all. In fact, I don't think it's even getting in touch with our pillow. If we are really in touch with a pillow, we know what a pillow is and we won't hit it. Still, <laughs> this guy's got a sense of humor. Still, this technique may work temporarily because while pounding the pillow, we expend a lot of energy and after a while we are exhausted and we feel better. But the roots of our anger are still intact. And if we go out and eat some nourishing food, our energy will be renewed. And if the seeds of our anger are watered again, the anger will reborn and we will have to pound the pillow again. And then I'm going to skip a part, but he ends by saying, mindfulness, if practiced continuously, will provide a kind of transformation within the flower of our anger and it will open and show us its own nature. And when we understand the nature, the roots of our anger, we will be freed from it. So, the roots of our anger. How is it that we get down to the roots of the anger? Well, this is the third way, not venting and not suppressing. It's really the way of meditation, the way of awareness. And the question or challenge here is how to allow the anger not to be suppressed or vented, but to have it come fully and wholeheartedly into the mind, into awareness, so that it can be met, investigated, and seen as empty and seen as changing. The way of meditation is the way of acceptance and patience. Whereas anger strikes out and lashes out, acceptance and patience welcome and invite. And this opens the possibility of relating to the anger and not from it. Now this doesn't imply on any level that we become docile, wishy-washy people, passive in our dealing with anger. Rather, I feel the situation is exactly the opposite. With discriminating wisdom and with a clear comprehension 
of the situation in which the anger arose, we are able to respond forcefully and powerfully in ways that are healing both inwardly and outwardly, rather than being mired in the escalating nightmare of tit-for-tat and blame and heartbreak and revenge. This third way then requires that we come up really close to the anger, looking at it directly, feeling it in the body. Where do you feel the anger in your body? In your face, chest perhaps, in the gut, in the neck, in the back, in the groin, in the hip area? And where do you feel it in the mind? How does the mind feel when there's anger? Tight, rigid, tense, contracted, stiff. As I've said before, for some of us, coming to know and even see the anchor can be very difficult and frustrating, particularly if there's been lung suppression. I'd like to speak personally, if I may, for a moment. I've been doing this practice for about 12 years now. And in the last years, and certainly more so recently, I feel I've been able to engage the anger directly for the first time. For me, much of the anger relates to the patterning of conditioning that is the legacy of the sexual abuse. Perhaps in the natural unfolding of the meditation practice, and for me, I believe this is true, it's taken time for the mind and the heart to mature to a degree where the anger, as powerful as it is, can be worked with. And so it may be the same for you too, wherever you are on your path, that there is a long, slow, and gradual befriending of anger that needs to happen, and that it's been hidden for a long time for good reason. So what is important with anger is developing that courage of mind, that warriorship of spirit, to stop in any moment of the day and ask, what is going on here? What is this energy? I'm feeling really rattled. Could this be anger? What are the thoughts? Really opening up to anger, how it works in life, is the beginning of an incredible journey of freeing oneself from the grip of something that can be so painful. This courage to stop and question and look and understand the energy again and again has been, in my experience, the way of slowly coming to open to the fullness of the anger that is there. This is an attitude that is so ripe with possibility. And slowly and gradually, with time, the full energy of anger emerges into the open to be befriended, to be respected, to be made workable, and to be known fully. And so in this next meditation period now, I'd like to ask you to be alert to any emotional stirring that there might be. For me, working with emotions is a little more difficult than with pain, where the sensations are very specific and clear. Emotions are less tangible, but they are workable too. And so in the sitting, if you feel like there's something off, if you're feeling 
is some anger or some fear, and I will be speaking about fear next, or some boredom, or some joy, happiness, just giving attention to that, using a soft mental note of joy, joy, or boredom, or anger, or anxiety, and beginning to include the emotional life also into the meditation practice. So the dance is getting wider now. We use the breath to stabilize, to settle, to cultivate concentration and calm. We open to sensations in the body, giving that same quality of bare attention to the sensations. And then if emotions arise, giving the emotions the same quality of bare attention, not judging them, not saying it's bad that anger came up, because it's not. Anger is a part of being human. Fear comes up, ah, that's what's here now. And opening to these emotions too, returning to the breath. If thoughts arise, just thinking, thinking. There's nothing wrong with thoughts. Thoughts are not a problem. We make them a problem. Some of us think that thoughts, that good meditation is the end of thoughts. No, really, thoughts are going to be around till the end, I understand, you know. So don't make thoughts a problem. If thinking happens, thinking. And most often you'll find when a thought starts, it's like a train. You catch it, ah, a thought. As soon as you're aware of the thought, it ends, you can go back to the breath. Perhaps more than any other aspect of the practice, opening to emotions is the one that requires the greatest patience. Shall we sit together, please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.